0: Thanks for joining us for Between the Lines, Luke. We had a little bit of a technical difficulty this last week and missed the first few moments of class, so we apologize if the transition is a bit abrupt. All you missed was the announcements. We wanted to let you know that Chris's Tuesday Night Men's Bible Study is resuming, so you can join us again on Tuesday evenings for another class with Chris. All right, let's get to Between the Lines, Luke. Yeah, so the reason that's in there like that is that for many, many years, for many, many years, I mean for centuries, the oldest manuscript that we had uh, said what's in the footnote, peace, goodwill among people. Then we found an older manuscript that seems to be a more original manuscript that is um, more restrictive and probably restrictive in the way that Luke intends, like he, so um thanks, Alex. The, the Lord favors those on the margins. Um and that that is a theme that we saw in Luke 1. It's gonna be a theme we'll see in Luke 4. I mean we're gonna see it all throughout. Uh and some later editor was like, Well, okay, but what if let's make that let's broaden that a little bit. Let's say everybody, and not just those whom he favors. It's interesting, right? The truer, the truer, uh, rendition is the one that's, that probably, that's probably in your... Is, do you have a newer bystander version? Yeah. But like the original King James version would have said peace among, uh, yeah, good and will among all men would have been gender specific. Okay. Verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. That's interesting, right? Because Jesus is Lord, and they're associating the angel with the Lord. Lord was also a title for God. And so there's, there's just a lot going on there. And so when, like this morning in worship, I talked about... Uh, the Chalcedonian definition. So this idea that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. If you remember like that, that was finalized in 451 AD. It took the church a long time to figure out exactly how we think through the, the like theologically and philosophically, how both of those things are possible. And yet the new Testament witness, I mean, the Orthodox argument here is the new Testament witness is very clear, is clear that there's, there's, there's a, um, uh, joining of divine and human nature somehow. There's not the systematic theology that gets described in this in these texts, but it's it's there. The Gospel of John, of course, takes that to the highest level. I would say. I mean, then that's it's also the latest of the Gospels. So when in the Gospel of John we hear in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, who is that's Logos, that's Jesus, the Son, second person of the Trinity. And the word was with God, and the word was God. I mean at that point we just by by the time John is written, so this is like in the in the late nineties something like that a d so probably twenty years after this um, there's not this kind of oblique association between Lord, angel, God, lord messiah, like it's just all kind of bubbling still, I would say, okay. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in a manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb when the time came for their pur- for their purification according to the law of Moses. So um, it's not their purification that has to happen according to the law of Moses. It's Mary's purification that has to happen according to the law of Moses. So this is one of those places where scholars think that this was not a Jewish Christian, <laughs> like a, a somebody who had uh, converted to Christianity from Judaism. Because he... This author knows enough to know that there are some rituals that happen during this time frame for a child, but he doesn't have the precision to know which ones they were. And if he was, if he was truly had been raised according to the law, then he would have known that. But but his point that he's making here, and this is a a point that comes up throughout Luke, is that Jesus is raised according to the law. He is uh, firmly in the the transition between these three. He has a strong connection to the first epoch of God's salvation history. He is inaugurating the last one. <laughs> but in this transition phase, it's both and. So he, he does all the things a good Jewish boy should do. His parents do for him all the things good Jewish parents should do. And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to launch a new thing. Does that make sense? So when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord... As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So if you're the oldest child, if you're the firstborn male, then um, you had to be, according to the law, redeemed. Like if you were the firstborn, you were gods. And so you belonged to God, like you weren't a God, you belong to God and uh, the law required that your parents make a sacrifice in the temple in order to uh, redeem you from God to themselves. That was certainly part of the tradition. So there's the circumcision, there's the presentation in the temple, there's redeeming your firstborn son, and there's Mary's ritual purification from having given birth. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. If you all remember, Holy Spirit's everywhere in this gospel, right? And so anybody who's going to say or do anything of importance has the Holy Spirit with them. And Simeon is certainly in that group. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, "Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace." the The Latin name for this song is the Nunc Dimittis. That's how you say. Uh, that's from that opening line. And just a side note here: in the Benedictine tradition. Uh, monks and or priests clergy persons in the Benedictine tradition take a vow of stability, uh, which means that once they join a monastery, they stay there the rest of their lives. They can go on vacation and see family and stuff, but that is their home forever. So if you go, if you join the a Benedictine monastery when you're 18 and you live to be 98 or 80 years, that is your home. And, um, when a, uh, a monk in that tradition is on his deathbed. <laughs> the other brothers gather around him and and sing this song in Latin, which is it's just it's so beautiful. So, Master, you are dismissing your servant in peace. And in that tradition, one more thing, uh, next to there's a chapel where you go five times a day. It sounds. That it sounds, I mean, it's... Uh, it sounds, I was going to say it sounds Muslim. It doesn't really. It's very Christian tradition. So early in the morning, breakfast, right before lunch, mid-afternoon, dinner time, and then before bed. You gather with your community to do these ritual prayers in the Benedictine tradition. And right next to that chapel where you go five times a day is the cemetery. Because St. Benedict said that you should keep death before you daily, which I love. Because we're all going back to God at some point. And if, I mean, our lives would be much richer if we could live each day remembering that. And so in this tradition where you're keeping death before you every day, on your deathbed, your, your fellow monks gather around and sing this beautiful song to you. It's just, it's awesome. So now you're, you're dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Right? We heard that in the Magnificat. I mean, the theme of reversal was on Mary's lips before he was born. And it's going to be a theme we'll see over and over again. Simeon sees it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's destined for the rising and fall, falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's, I'll come back to those themes here in a minute. There was also a prophet, Anna. Prophet Anna. There are women leaders in the Bible. The daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, Then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law uh, of their Lord, of the Lord, the law of the Lord, required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's an understatement. <laughs> Favor of God was certainly upon him. So in that little section with Simeon, you get these uh, these key themes that will show up again throughout Luke. I mean, this is the sign of a really brilliant author. I mean, yes, he's inspired theologically, but just in terms of his technique, <laughs> like his craft, he is a fantastic author because these themes show up in uh, Luke one, and here, I mean, we're only. 40 verses, one chapter and 40 verses into this thing. And we're already pretty clear what we're going to see over and over again. So uh, this is a a child who's going to be raised according to the law. Um, Come back to this point here, the second point, the importance of Jerusalem and the temple. His message is going to be to Jew and Gentile alike. So it's a universal offer of salvation, which makes sense, especially that this would be an emphasis for an author who is probably a convert. To the club, right? And his community is probably much converts as well. So that's a key theme of his. Uh, and then, and I think this is something uh, not to be overlooked that, you know, we read, I read Luke, and I tend to focus on the themes of overturning and the uh, message to the folks on the margins and, um, it's really Sunday School Jesus that we're going to get. So it's you know Good Samaritan, Prodigal Son, Zacchaeus. I mean, this is a very uh, a Jesus that is focused on others. It's very grace filled. It's got a tough message, I think, for the you know for people not to get too haughty or too proud of their power and all that. But um, it's not. We can't overlook the fact that the the path to salvation is going to go through pain. Now, Mark significantly influent, uh, emphasizes the cross to the extent that you can't read any of Mark 16 chapters and miss the cross in there. The, it's not quite that prominent in Luke um, but the the cross scene in Luke is uh, the longest of any of the Gospels and Jesus uh, will will say some really meaningful things on the cross. Of course all of the words of Jesus on the cross are meaningful but This author does something different than, than Matthew and Luke do. So Matthew and Luke, it's the Psalm of Lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Luke, it's going to be the forgiveness of the thief on the cross. It's going to be, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Um, and Simeon is going to, tells his mama, right? I mean, before they go home to Nazareth, that the way is going to be hard. which is pretty, um, it's pretty poignant. I, have you seen, have, has most of y'all seen The Passion of the Christ? So um, there are many things I, I don't like about that movie, but one of the things that I think they do really well is the relationship between Mary and Jesus. I mean, the, the way they portray their connection. And uh, to me, what, they, what uh, Mel Gibson and his team did there was really pick up on themes that are in Luke. That you know, she, she pondered lots from before he was ever born, all the way to the cross and beyond. And there's a, a scene where it's totally a, a biblical. I mean, it's not in the Bible, but where she's as he's being scourged, like she's got this connection with him that's just really it's just really moving. And then the, uh, she uh, sees him on the road, on the walk, on the Via della Rosa. So uh, I think I think there was quite a connection between Mary and Jesus, and um, she's a hero in many ways, and I think that's one of them. That's one of the ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oftentimes, Mary Magdalene, we talk about being the apostle to the apostles because of the resurrection stories. She's the one that gets the message first. She runs and tells the the disciples. The guys were all hiding, of course. Um, <laughs> and I think there's a lot to that. But then there is a really unique role that Mary plays, and um, I just I think it's really poignant. No doubt about that. And her other... She had another son, of course, James. You know, he plays a pretty big role, too. Okay. Um, I'm going to keep going. At any point, just stop me if you wanted to talk more about it or if you had a specific... That's a great question. That is a great question. I love those kind of questions. Okay. Now, listen. You're going to get me on a rabbit hole here, but I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. So... It's a good rabbit hole. It's a good, it's a good rabbit okay, good <laughs> good good good. Okay, so we're we're trinitarian in our theology, right? So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Some sometimes people say because the the gender specific language is distracting for some people. So some people say creator, redeemer, sustainer. I'm not crazy about that construction because I think all of the members of the Trinity have uh, expansive roles beyond those specific roles. <clears throat> but like this, uh, to say, to talk about the sun is not the same thing as t- to say Jesus. Do you all know that? So uh, the person Jesus of Nazareth, who lived from, let's just keep it simple, 1 AD to 33 AD, <clears throat> that was the the human incarnation of the sun, right? The sun didn't start existing, in 1 AD right and it, it, we i do realize in some senses this is like how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, right i mean I, but but listen the christian theologians have spent centuries and frankly spilled too much blood arguing about this but what we believe is that the second person of the trinity always was and always will be the gospel of john makes that clear in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So that means that the Son didn't come into existence on the, from one uh, at, like at one one AD to thirty three AD. But it does mean that this is that Jesus was the human incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. That's when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. That's what incarnation means. Because we believe that this is three and one, three in one, and there's all kinds of fancy Greek words to talk about substance and all that. But they are all co-eternal. They've all always existed. It's all, God has all always only ever existed and only ever will exist. So, yeah, it's the, it's the Holy Spirit. It absolutely is the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus in... Um, John's gospel is telling the disciples something that they're having a hard time understanding. What he's telling them is, this is the way I would explain it, that upon his death, and for the author of Luke, that happens at Pentecost in Acts, right? Same author. When does it happen for John? John. Yeah, night of the resurrection. Which one is it? Yes. (laughs) Right, exactly. But the incarnation of the Holy Spirit begins when Jesus ascends, after the resurrection. So the second person of the Trinity, that incarnation of that second person of the Trinity comes to an end. And then the Holy Spirit is given to everyone who believes in him. The church is the incarnation of God through the Holy Spirit. And that started, if you read John, on the night of the resurrection when he says, Receive the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Or, well, good question. The Holy Spirit has always existed. So, it takes on the Holy Spirit, the incarnation of the Holy Spirit is through the body of believers, the body of Christ. I mean, all that kind of metaphorical language we use talks about the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And for Luke, you had Israel, you had Jesus, and you have the church. Jesus is the Son, clearly. The church is the Holy Spirit, is the work of the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit didn't exist in Israel's time. I mean, Genesis 1 the spirit of God moves over the waters at creation. Uh, the Holy Spirit, not, we didn't say the Holy Spirit. The spirit is with uh, the prophets, right? In our creeds, we say that the spirit works through the voice of the prophets. It's just that the Holy Spirit has a different kind of mission once the church is born. And much of the New Testament is unpacking that role of the Holy Spirit. So the answer to your question is it's the same spirit, but when Jesus is talking about um, I'm going to give you the spirit, you're not going to be left comfortless. The spirit's going to guide you into all truth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He, I mean, theologically speaking, he's talking about the how the how God incarnates in the Holy Spirit in us. Like we believe the Holy Spirit is with every one of us. That that's literally what it means that um, the Holy Spirit's working through us. In a unique way. And the reason Jesus in John's gospel says, look, you're better off that way. (laughs) I'm only one. And I can only be around you when I'm around you. God is only near you when I'm with you. (laughs) In your current understanding. But there's going to come a time when everyone who believes in my name. Will have the power of God working in them in a unique way. That's a great way to. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, that's a great way to put that. There's also this controversy. I'm sure I've probably talked about this before. But there is... The the filioque clause was the thing that divided the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Because the Eastern Orthodox Church does not believe... I mean, it's really about power and money. But the excuse was... uh, when the Pope wanted to add "and the Son," that's what that means, "and the Son," to um, the to the creed where it says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, Pope says, "Ah, you know what? If you read John's Gospel, it really is the Father and the Son, which kind of makes the Holy Spirit subordinate to both those other members of the Trinity." I know I'm probably boring the heck out of you right now, but. The Eastern Church is the, the other, the, the Church, the Bishop of Constantinople, the Bishop of Jerusalem, the Bishop of Alexandria, those, other, every other church other than the Bishop of Rome said, ah, no, I don't think so. I think we're good with the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And the, and the Vatican said, no, my way or the highway. And they said, fine, bye. And that was in 1060, uh, 10 something. So, they're really kind of, I mean, that really is a minor point, I, I would say. I mean, for the practical life of the believer. But, um, you know, we like to argue about details. I've tell you, it's always about uh, Oh, ego, yeah. Power, money, ego. It's one of the three. So then next, in 41, we have, uh, the only story of Jesus' childhood. I'm sure you know that. And where is it, t- where does it take place? The temple, right? I erased it, but the, the centrality of Jerusalem and the temple is really important because in Luke's theology, he's devoting a whole book to this transition period between Israel and the church. And the connections between the two are really important. And so this gospel begins in the temple, and it ends in the temple. And all throughout, the temple is um, central. And there will be a place that we'll get to and, uh, after his ministry in Galilee where it says Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. like Jerusalem is a key player in the whole. Like, geography is a big deal, and the temple in particular is an important location for this author. Uh, okay, so now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Um, when he was 12, years, in that era you had to go, you had to make three pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimages a year. You had to go to Jerusalem for Passover, for Pentecost, and for tabernacles. If you lived far away, and, you know, uh, Galilee qualifies as far away for someone who's, who doesn't have a lot of money, then you had, had to go only for Passover. But every year at Passover, Jerusalem would be full. <laughs> made, the, made the Romans very nervous. They have all these rabble-rousing Jews in uh, Jerusalem, and we'll get to that story later. When the festival ended and they started to return, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Not bad parenting, it would have been a huge group, and he would have been 12, which is very close to being of age. Um, Mary and Joseph probably had other kids, probably, well, certainly had younger kids, um, and so, you know, you assume they're with the extended family. I mean, it was a, a different day and time. So assuming he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey, and then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem uh, to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Which is exactly what a Jewish boy of this age would do, right? This is a this is a very standard Jewish upbringing. It gets a little less standard here in a second. Um, when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, "Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety." He said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And Mary looked at Joseph and said, I just told you we shouldn't have been talking so loud after he we went to bed. How, how, did he, how did he know that? <laughs> but they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother, what'd she do? Treasured all these things in her heart. I'm telling you, man, Mary, Mary's a rock star. And it's not just because I was raised Catholic. She is a rock star. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Okay. So, uh, then we get, there are a couple of standard stories here from the Gospels. Um, and then there's this, this, uh, genealogy thrown in. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna press on. If somebody had a question about that. It does not. We're gonna get to that. Yeah. It, it, it differs in important ways. Um, Let me just make one more point before we read his baptism story. So, um, this this notion of uh, the centrality of Jerusalem and the temple. So, you know, the the gospel starts here, and um, then Jesus goes up and does some stuff in Galilee, and then he makes his way, he sets his face to Jerusalem and of course the earthly part of the story ends there right that's all in the gospel which is the first part of this two-part series then you know what happens in Acts <laughs> I mean the church does this to the ends of the earth so the movement in like theologically and geographically is uh Christ's ministry uh begins in Jerusalem. There's a little detour to Nazareth, or Gal Galleys and Nazareth and Galilee, and then uh it comes back to Jerusalem. But it's at that point then that the Holy Spirit comes and empowers that ministry to go to the ends of the earth. Okay. All right. So in the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, so that's uh Few years later, I guess 18 years after our previous story, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and uh, Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to the son of Zechariah, to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a very specific thing, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is one of those themes that we talked about from that will carry through uh, Luke's gospel. Um, baptism was not an unknown ritual in those days, so John did not invent baptism. But uh, there was proselyte baptism for people converting to Judaism. That was a kind of a... Initiation ceremony. Um, there was among the uh, the community at Qumran, which is not far from Jerusalem. There was a baptism was like this ritual cleansing, which clearly has echoes in Leviticus, the ritual cleansing of priests. Um, but John specifically talked about repentance and forgiveness of sin. So there's something different going on here. And obviously, in the church's history, baptism will. That'll be part of it, but for like for infants, you know, it evolves quite a bit. I mean, that's probably its own class: the history of baptism. That's want to make the point that this is uh, a a variation on an existing ritual, as it's written in the Book of the Words of the Prophet Isaiah: "The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord; make his path straight. Each valley, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways." made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, (laughs) he's popular for some reason, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Whew. That's a specific kind of preaching right there. And the crowds asked him, and this section, these verses, 10 through 14, are only in Luke. And you'll hear distinctive Lucan themes here. So the crowds asked him, what then should we do? And in reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. It's a consistent concern for people without power. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. Y'all know that. You' know John so John had his own disciples, his own followers, um, people who thought he might have been the Messiah because he was charismatic. Uh, he was clearly getting people 's attention, he innovated this new thing and he talked about repentance and forgiveness of sins, uh, and so each of the gospel authors does a uh, does a different thing or slightly different thing, or um, kind of variations on a theme of reducing john 's importance, um, diminishing <laughs> his role. He's got a role. He's got an important role. And in fact, Luke's gospel gives him the biggest role because of the whole stuff in, in uh, Luke one. But then when it comes to the moment of his interactions with Jesus, like in John uh, famously, he says he must increase and I must decrease. And like the way they tell the story, it's not actually clear that John did the baptism of Jesus. So there's, uh, it's, it's interesting how that plays out. So John answered all of them as verse sixteen by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's the Holy Spirit again. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Merry Christmas. (laughs) That yeah, that comes up in advent sometimes. So with many other expe- uh, exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, you remember that story, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them, by, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. We'll, get, we'll hear the story of Herodias later. Another way you can know he's telling the story in retrospect, right? <laughs> so John's in prison. I mean, we all know John goes to prison, he loses his head, but he's in prison before the baptism. (laughs) Now, does that mean that he didn't baptize Jesus? Not necessarily. Like he could just be telling the story in a nonlinear way, but it's subtle, (laughs) but he is in prison clearly in verse 20. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. So, baptism of Jesus is recorded overtly in, in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John does something unique like John always does. Here, uh, it's, it adds the, thing, the point that Jesus was praying. That's unique to Luke. And we're going to see over and over again in Luke that Jesus' prayer life is, is highlighted. like it's, it's important to Luke that we know that Jesus was serious about prayer. There's a word there, I think, for all of us. And then there's this thing about descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Um, I, I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, maybe a dove descended from heaven. Maybe, it's, maybe that's the way Jesus experienced it. Maybe that's just important for Mark to point out that that's how significant the Holy Spirit is, that it showed up, like it looked like it was embodied. Um, but clearly the Holy Spirit's a big deal. And then God, in some of the Gospels, talks to the crowd and says, this is my beloved son. Here, he talks to Jesus and says, you are my son, the beloved and you know, I would, I would argue that that is consistent with, with Luke 1. So it, it's clear, Luke has told us in his very opening verses, that, that God and Jesus, the Father and the Incarnation of the Son, have this unique relationship. The other Gospels don't make it that clear. Matthew does a little bit. But him talking to his son at this moment in his ministry is, is uh, pretty significant. In the early church, it took a while. Some there, there was an argument in the early church that Jesus became the Son of God as baptism. That's called an adoptionist Christology. Um, some would you, would take this to argue that now you are my beloved Son. But of course, that only makes sense if Chapter One doesn't exist in Luke, because <laughs> we already know that. But okay. So then, here's one of only two references in the entire New Testament about Jesus' age. Uh, The other one is in John, I believe. Let's see. I've got it written down somewhere. Anyway, I think it's John. But there are only two places in the the New Testament that tells us his age. So Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought, (laughs) of Joseph. So, in Luke's, there's two genealogies in the New Testament. Matthew starts with Abraham, like a genealogy is supposed to, like the first person. And it goes all the way down to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus. It goes backwards, all the way to Adam. Matthew was almost certainly written by a Jewish Christian, a convert to Christianity from Judaism. And Matthew is full, full, like exhaustingly full, of um, allusions to the Old Testament. This, this is in accordance with, this, this happened in accordance with this scripture, that scripture. Luke alludes to plenty of scripture, but he doesn't say this is to fulfill this, this and that scripture, because he's speaking primarily to a Jewish Christian audience for whom it's most important uh how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. Luke isn't worried about all that. He knows the Septuagint, he knows the, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, clearly, but his community didn't is largely converts. And so the the key stuff about Adam is not really all that important. I mean they didn't really I mean Abraham rather, they didn't really know that much about Abraham. So he sets it in the context of this larger salvation narrative. So Jesus is the connector to Israel, but Israel is not the be-all, end-all. I mean, this is, he's got uh, kind of a cosmological interest here because he's, his descendants, the people he's talking to, are not descended from Abraham. They're not children of Abraham. But the point is that it's the, uh, the first human being. Like that, You know what? That's the context, yeah. All right, we can do it. 13, 13 verses. We just got to talk a little bit about the devil. Here we go. Okay, so Jesus, full of Holy Spirit, there it is, was returned uh, returned from the Jordan, aside for his baptism, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it's written, one does not live by bread alone. And then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it's been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him <laughs> until an opportune time. That's, that's a Luke detail. Matthew doesn't tell it that way. Because Luke's a better storyteller, <laughs> and I mean, no no offense to Matthew, um, and Matthew or Luke knows that that's not the end of the story. The devil's not done with him because the Devil's going to have a, a part to play in Judas's betrayal. So uh, that story is certainly a familiar one if you've been around the church for a while. We're actually going. It's going to be the first text. It's always the first. It's always the recommended gospel text. The first Sunday of Lent, and it will be again this year. We're, uh, I'm going I'm to be out of town, so Reagan's preaching on that one. Um, but there's two things here. The first is he doesn't take Jesus to the top of a mountain. It doesn't say that. It says, um, to going to a high place or something like that. Let's see. Let him up. Let him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. But there's no mountain mentioned. Because in Luke, mountains are reserved for prayerful retreat. And Revelation, and devil doesn't get either one of those, which I love. He's basically thumbing his nose at the devil in that with that detail. And then the other one is uh, this notion about this illusion <laughs> that the story is not L- all illusion that the story is not done yet. Such a great storyteller. So in four. In three chapters and 13 verses, then, we've got the most comprehensive view that any of the gospels give us about what about what Jesus uh who he was who he was and what he was all about before he emerged onto the scene. So when we have because we have Luke's gospel, we know that there was a fair amount of work that the Holy Spirit was doing in his life through the people around him, uh, people who either identified something in him, like Simeon, or who were told something about him, like his parents. Um, and it's a, really, it's a really comprehensive view of him before his first sermon. And that's unique. Matthew doesn't give us that. Uh, Mark certainly doesn't give us that. And John, the first thing we see about Jesus is he's about to, this, is this whole thing with John the Baptist where he's getting baptized at 30, he just shows up one day. So one of the beautiful things about Luke, I mean, I I, I tend to focus on the things that are unique to Luke that are uh, stories that we love and and hear over and over. Good Samaritan, prodigal son, that kind of stuff. But also, Jesus' early life would not be nearly as rounded out if we didn't have this author giving us all of this, not just backstory, but theological backstory that sets the tone then for his entire ministry from chapter 4, verse 14 on. Next week we are going to meet. We're not going to do this week on week off thing. It's going to be. I think Reagan's doing next week because um, I'm. Uh, I've got a meeting or something next Sunday, and then in two weeks we'll pick up with 4:14, which is uh, his first sermon, which is a. It's a doozy. It's a whopper. It's a. It's a not a whopper. That's like a, sounds like a tall tale. It's like a. He steps on toes, I guess. That's what I'm saying. They're going to throw him off a cliff or try to as a result of it. So. The preacher's advice would be take it down a notch on your first one, Jesus. But no, nope, he's that's not how he's wired. All right, um, any last thoughts or questions? I know we're right at four thirty. I covered a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't actually don't think that that is related to Israel's story so much as it is Luke's theological need, um, desire to make very clear that he's got a connection to Israel. Because his his audience probably, his audience may have been in Rome. It's not exactly clear where exactly he was writing. Um, But it's, most scholars would argue that the the vast majority of his community did not come from that um, culture, the Jewish culture, Jewish history, you know, community. And so that wouldn't have been as much of a concern. But you're right, by the time he's writing this, the temple's been destroyed probably 20 years, 66 Sixty-seven in there, after the Second Jewish War, and um, his connection, his his desire to talk about that seems to be theological, but we'll see it over and over again. Like the, the temple displays a, a key role. M- most of the story of Mary and Elizabeth, like their backstories and what happens later and all that, is in is in the tradition. It's extra. Like not, it's not in the Bible. It's grew up kind of. I don't want to say folklore, but, like, they they kept alive the stories of those women, and many of that emerged into kind of Catholic piety or Eastern Orthodox piety. But, you know, Protestants, if it's not in the Bible, we don't care about it. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to close this with prayer, and then I'll be around. I've actually got a, my next meeting is at 5 with the youth, so I'll wrap up shortly thereafter. So thanks, you guys, for being here. Uh, you'll be in good hands with Reagan. She's going to teach something. I don't know if it's going to be like a couple of weeks, kind of spread out or whatever, but it'll be good. Let's pray. Gracious God, we're grateful for the stories of our faith. We're grateful for uh, Luke, who provided such a, a rich treasure of theology and theological reflection that we get to turn to again and again. I give you thanks for all the souls in this room who gathered together to Uh, be in conversation about the most important things. Guard and guide each of us as we leave this place. In Christ's name we pray.